people need to divest themselves of this notion that the Constitution and bourgeois law is going to save us in the face of a, a, a rising fascist force. We have to remember there is no fascist force anywhere on planet Earth that I am aware of that was ever voted out of office. And if we really believe that this is what this man and his his the forces aligned with him represents, we better take a, a much more serious tone, tact, and organizing plan to deal with it. Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Very happy to have you. Historic times we're living through. I think everyone understands that. It's certainly on the minds and on the lips of everyone that you speak with, everyone that you encounter. What's going on in this country? But the other question that has to be asked along with that is how do we find out what's really going on in this country? Not the bullshit that the corporate media wants to feed to us, but the real story. That's what we go to the independent media for. That's what we come to Counterpunch for. And Counterpunch is asking for your support. We are finishing up our fund drive, and again, we are getting real close to our goal If we can reach that goal, we can continue to provide all the kind of great content that we have been, including the expanded subscriber section coming to the website and all of the other great stuff. Um, If you believe that Counterpunch is important, especially as the state under an orange fascist is quite literally attacking and targeting journalists, if in this moment... You want to support good journalism, support Counterpunch with a subscription. You can make a donation through the PayPal, whatever it is you need to do. Also, just as a side note, if you want to support my work outside of this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates or lots more podcasts and commentaries and a whole lot more. That said, I want to talk about the burning questions. Burning, of course, being 
very apt, I suppose. The burning question of the day, I don't need to explain to everybody what's going on in the United States as we speak here on the evening of June 1st, 2020. I have an amazing guest to speak with me about what's going on. Kali Akuno is back on the program, uh, returning guest here to Counterpunch. He is a co-founder of Cooperation Jackson, co-director of Cooperation Jackson. He is a member and organizer with People Strike, peoplestrike.org, People Strike on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, the websites cooperationjackson.org and cooperationjxn on Twitter. You got to follow Cooperation Jackson, one of the most important projects and initiatives anywhere in the country. Kali Akuno, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you for having me. Kali, I don't really need to set this all up for you, I don't think. So let's just, uh, let me just ask you. We're recording on the night of June 1st. It's a couple of hours. It's a couple of hours after Donald Trump has given a speech in which he has more or less invoked martial law, uh, depending on how you want to interpret it. So I'm just going to start there. What are your reactions? What are you thinking about here on June 1st in the evening? Number one, predictable. We need to be clear about that. Uh, number two, it's an effort uh, on his part and the part of his allies, because he's not acting in the singular or as an individual. Uh, he's representing uh, his administration, being the mouthpiece of it. He's also representing the organized forces of, of the right. Uh, and he's organized, he represents a, a certain segment of capital. Uh, and we need to be very clear about that. Um, they are trying very clearly uh, to benefit from the Floyd Rebellion, which I think is what we need to call this. Uh, so I'll interject that. Uh, and, you know, I've been noting for about a week since, you know, this really, I think, popped off to a level where it was clear that this was going to be sustained for a bit uh, on Wednesday, uh, that he was going to pull out the Nixon playbook uh, and start to try to reposition himself as uh, the president of law and order and the enforcer of law and order. That speech he gave a couple of hours ago now, I mean, that was literally like a cut and paste from some Nixon Trump <clears throat> stump speeches, you know, from, from 68. Uh, and there's a calculated formula that we need to be very clear uh, that he and the forces allied with him uh, are counting on. And that formula is the vast majority of white people in this country, you know, primarily in the suburbs, uh, in, in rural areas, um, you know, where he won a, 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 the majority of, of his votes, that they are going to fall in line despite many of their, you know, doubts that folks may have had or that have cropped up and emerged uh, uh, in the wake of the pandemic, in the wake of COVID-19, uh, that they will view black lawlessness, which is how, you know, uh, this is being strategically framed by the forces of the right, uh, as the greater threat, you know, to uh, themselves and to this mythical American way of life. And uh, that will give them the political support that they need to either win the election or, if it comes down to it, to nullify 
any elections that may take place or outright cancel them. You know, so his maneuvers are strategic. They're not posturing. They're not games. Uh, and they are very calculated in order to position themselves to, to best exploit this dynamic and this narrative of kind of black lawlessness. This is a well-worn strategy, uh, you know, playbook of white supremacy in this country um, that has worked, unfortunately, time and time again, uh, that they are banking on. You know, and I think he has in his mind that this is basically uh, 1968 uh, all over again. And for those who don't know what I'm alluding to there, the last major uh, rebellion of this scale and scope that occurred in the United States happened in the aftermath of uh, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King on April 4th, 1968, where over 100 cities spontaneously, 100 plus cities spontaneously erupted. This is the, the nearest thing to that that we have seen in the 50 plus years since, since 1968. Um, and how Nixon was able to pivot that against the Johnson administration uh, and against uh, you know, the liberal forces in general uh, was one of the key things, wasn't the only thing, but one, one of the key things uh, that enabled him to resuscitate his career and to come into power and effectively to put the hammer down, you know, uh, which really started immediately after Nixon got in office. I mean, Nixon won the election before he actually took office. I mean, one of the things I want everybody in the audience to go back and look at and note uh, is what occurred, uh, the reign of terror that the FBI just executed against the forces of the Black Liberation Movement right after those elections were confirmed you know, uh, against the Black Panther Party, against the Revolutionary Action Movement, um, uh, against SNCC, the Student Nonviolent uh, uh, Coordinating Committee, which in 1968 had actually changed its name to the Student National Coordinating uh, uh, Committee. Um, and these are things that we need to, to drum up and understand. However, I would argue that I think it's a potential miscalculation uh, this is not 1968. And what makes this different than 1968 in some fundamental ways is the is the multiracial character of this rebellion. Now, it's political animus, it's kind of moral uh, uh, clarity. Uh, it's coming from, uh, you know, the blatant murder that occurred in Minneapolis. But that was kind of the final straw that broke the camel's back. You know, this is the the result of this rebellion in many respects is the result uh, of the Trump administration itself and uh, folks trying to figure out you know, how to resist the, the blatant racism, uh, sexism, uh, that has been on display, you know, the xenophobia that has just been on display every single day, you know, for the last three plus years. Uh, and there's been a number of fight back initiatives that, that have occurred. 
um, you know, particularly at the beginning of Trump's administration that we have to hearken back into. But I think it's it's taking people a minute to try to figure out, you know, what to do and how to do. And I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, being honest, being truthful, um, a lot of that motion was captured by a kind of NGOization of, of the, the political movements or the social movements, which tried to redirect everything back into the fold of like the Democratic Party uh, and its apparatus. Uh, then some of that kind of got folded into um, uh, the election of a few progressive and socialist candidates to Congress, most notably the squad. Uh, and then a lot of that energy got channeled into Bernie's campaign. Um, and as all those doors have, have been closed, all those efforts have come up you know, short at mounting a real resistance, people are having to rise up and, and take the initiative once again themselves. And that is what we've seen these last couple of nights. It is historic. It is, you know, a, a, a major advance, no matter how you look at what's occurred. Some of the things that we've seen are a major advance, a major growth in the consciousness, which has been building, I would say now, over some time. I think, you know, the movement for Black Lives, Occupy, Standing Rock, all these things have been pretty significant precursors that have led people to a higher state of consciousness and a, and a willingness uh, to take more risks, but also clarity, uh, I think more clarity than we've seen in quite some time, um, about a clear understanding that the system is not meant to serve the vast majority of humanity, and it cannot solve the contradictions in the crisis that it itself put forward. People are still searching for, I think, a concrete answer. But I think a very clear at this point of we got to get uh, the old order and the old forces, you know, which which um, seek to direct that order, get them out the way. Um, and that's that's where we're at, you know. And so this is what makes this not sixty eight. And, and me saying that, I'm not quite sure if that old formula that Trump and the right are banking on, if that is going to work in the way that they, you know, think it will automatically be a surefire way of them being able to consolidate their power. There is no program that they've put forward which is going to be able to meet the immediate needs of 40 million newly unemployed people. They have no intention on doing that other than trying to force people back to work under more heinous conditions because you know, Trump eliminated basically OSHA uh, and the EPA with his executive decree of a, what now, a week and a half ago, uh, which I would argue has the equal amount of weight. If in, in the long term, we have the equal amount of weight as this, this kind of de facto martial law piece that he's kind of setting in, in motion, right? Uh, which he did today. That was a, a, a pretty devastating blow to the working class. And he made it very clear that he wanted to make this permanent. And we need to be very clear that the elimination of all those, you know, regulatory statutes and institutions, that's been a long-term objective, you know, uh, of the far right for decades. And this is just being used, 
you know, the COVID-19, the pandemic, the economic crisis have been used, you know, just as a catalyst uh, for them to enact all the different programs of disaster capitalism that they've, they've kind of had sitting on the shelf for years and they're just pulling all that out and executing it. Um, so, you know, this is why Trump hasn't panicked. This is why he's kind of waited uh, to raise his voice. Um, it is by design. It is by strategy. I just don't think uh, their strategy is going to work to the same degree that they think it will work. I think they have a read still in many fundamental respects on the United States that this is somehow still the 1950s in, in their minds. You know, it's clearly part of the world that they want to go back to. Uh, but things have fundamentally changed. Uh, there is no going back to the status quo. Uh, I think everybody is clear on that. Um, nor should we even attempt to try to go back, uh, uh, you know, to the the inequality that exists, the racism that exists, to the want destruction of the environment that already existed. We shouldn't be trying to go back there anyway. You know, but they see an opportunity to try to take us back to the 16th century. So there's two different competing visions uh, uh, that are at play. Unfortunately, you know, we need to be sober in our assessment. You know, the right still has more tools at its disposal um, right now, you know, to throw at us. It's more organized than we are. That's his greatest tool. It's more organized, more coherent more clear on his aims and objectives than you know, the forces, uh, uh, you know, on the left and in, in, in liberal forces. It's far more clear in their minds what they want to do. And that's a strength. Uh, but they are there are fewer of them than I think there are more progressive forces in this country. Uh, and they are not going to be able to kind of control uh, all of the conditions because a good number of those jobs that disappear are never coming back. And if they stay committed to a program of not providing any form of kind of temporary belief, thinking from their vantage point that that's great because that, that means that they will be able to weaken the, the position of organized labor, uh, enforce new standards and new wages on, on and new working conditions on folks because they're so desperate. I don't think that's going to work the way that they, they envision it. And then, of course, it's our job to make sure that that does not work. Um, and that is one of the reasons why, you know, uh, Cooperation Jackson, uh, you know, put forth this this effort, this challenge, um, you know, our kind of objective read of the situation that um, there's a crisis that we also should try to step into and intervene in and give shape to the future in the way that we want it to be, a, you know, an eco-socialist future. And, and to intervene from the grassroots to move folks in that direction. That's why we call for the people's strike in this effort uh, to organize towards a general strike, you know, that we're working on and trying to push, understanding it's going to take us some time. I think this whole piece um, that's happened with the Floyd Rebellion will give be even more catalytic uh, for the left to move in this direction and to gain some confidence where many folks, when we first called for this in April, uh, thought it was premature, um, um, you know, thought it might be risky. Uh, I think this is shaking everybody up. And, and the way in which, you know, the state has responded, I think, has made it clear uh, 
uh, that half measures aren't going to cut it, you know, that they aren't going to be in unless we bring maximum pressure uh, to the fore. And that is what I think is beginning to emerge. That's what we're beginning to see. And that's why, quite frankly, you know, Trump is so keen to try to cut this off, uh, to keep the momentum from building uh, and, and, and from the flood really uh, just washing him and his ilk uh, off the scene, you know, which they have to acknowledge and have acknowledged, I think, in some fundamental ways is a possibility. Um, but we have to make it so. And there's a lot of work we're going to have to do to get there. One of the most heartening aspects uh, watching this unfolding movement has to do with the leadership. And when I say leadership, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, NGOs with liberal money bags, and I'm not talking about, you know, white leftist grouplets. I'm talking about organic leadership, especially organic, organically developing leadership coming from uh, black and brown young people. That's what I see more than anything else, uh, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, a couple of YouTube videos. I spent hours watching live streams from like a dozen or two dozen different cities on Twitter and on Periscope and all these different places. And what, what, what you see, the most common thing you see is black and brown young people in the lead taking the lead not only in terms of organizing and leading protests, but taking the lead on an ideological level, as you were mentioning in your comments earlier, Kali, this uh, consciousness, uh, an elevated consciousness, a political consciousness that is much more uh, 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 ideologically grounded and rooted in a historical understanding than anything I witnessed at Occupy, than anything I witnessed in the anti-war movement against the Iraq war in 2002, 2003. This is something new. And it, I think, especially for those of us who, you know, have been doing it for a little while or for a long time, I mean, that is something that really is inspiring. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, someone asked me earlier today, you know, as we've been, you know, today was June 1st was the second of what we're calling first strike actions. You know, we, we set a course uh, in, in uh, April as we started pulling together the coalition that is the people's strike. You know, one of the ideas came from uh, the uh, Corona strike um, that, that we know we're going to have to be in this in the long haul. Uh, and that May Day itself wasn't going to cut it, right? That it was a good, uh, as we say, so it was a launching pad, not a landing place, right? And uh, to be able to sustain that initiative, to build a real campaign, we needed to strike the first of every month. Um, so we've been doing that all day. And, and you know, the thing that I've noticed uh, uh, in May, you know, in May Day, when all the actions took place was the very thing that you're pointing out, Eric, you know, what I would call the quality of the young forces uh, that I've encountered and been working with, you know, these past two months, you know, uh, I wish I was that damn sharp <laughs> 25, 30 years ago, you know, when I was their age, you know, uh, and had this level of consciousness and awareness, uh, focus and determination, um, you know, uh, there's still a lot of training that they need to do. And I think some of the levels of the, the training from the generation of the, the 1960s that, that I had, I see missing them in some ways, uh, but being much more clear and attuned to 
how power actually functions, you know, both on the macro and the micro levels, you know, some of the dynamics around the micro level and how that relates. I wasn't educated. I wasn't schooled. I wasn't trained in that. Um, and I think they, they there's, there's a, a, a much deeper grounding that uh, this generation has um, in, you know, not only, you know, uh, what the system is, uh, but how we need to, to take on the work of struggling with ourselves to not keep uh, and uh, the internalization of all the parasitic behaviors that we've learned, you know, from being educated in school for centuries now under capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy. They're starting at a different place and it's showing up, I think, you know, uh, on the streets. And I think it's one of the reasons why this hasn't just been a day or two. Well, you know, it's basically almost been a week now, you know, of, of sustained resistance. Um, and I don't, I don't see it going away. I see people learning uh, in the span of this week, you know, their consciousness growing, you know, by leaps and bounds. You know, and let me give an example of what I mean. And it's not just, just again, I want to highlight, because I do think this is important, that the Black leadership is there, definitely there. But there is something to the multiracial dimension of this, and particularly to to some of the white working class and and some of the you know folks who are coming from the petty bourgeois classes who are are uh, also uh, engaged in this in this motion. So one of the most significant things that I've seen are um, here in Mississippi. I'll just draw it home, but maybe bring an analogy, you know, to to bring it more into view. What I see qualitatively changing and why this is, I think, so important. Typically here in Mississippi, um, when there's, you know, any kind of major social protest that come that takes place, most of that is typically concentrated in and around Jackson. And and that's for some some obvious reasons, you know, probably three. One, uh, it's the political capital of the state. Two, it's the second largest city in the state. Three, it's the most liberal area in the state. Historically, it's been that way. So, you know, if something happens, you know, uh, of a statewide nature, or if sometimes things even happen of a local nature, you know, somebody gets killed, there typically will be kind of a small, you know, demonstration here or there. But most things concentrate in Jackson for those reasons, right? And it's that third reason, the liberal nature of it, which is very significant, has been significant historically. Because uh, folks know that they, if they come here, to, to particularly white folks, young white folks in particular, come here, know that there'll be more of a of a tolerance and, and an acceptance of their activity that they won't find back in the small towns where they come from. Well, this go round, uh, we've seen about uh, twenty different actions in majority white cities. Um, uh, in the eastern part of the state where the vast majority of the white population lives. Mississippi is kind of, you know, divided uh, uh, in two geographically and, and, and politically in that regard, right? The the east is mainly uh, white uh, and, and, and poor, and the west is black and extremely poor, uh, you know, for the most part. Um, but we've seen protests happening, you know, uh, in some of these small places that we've never seen before, you know, being led by white youth who are 
standing, uh, raising their voice, you know, uh, uh, defending the humanity of a black man. We didn't see that in the 1960s in Mississippi. You know, that wasn't there. So I'm talking about the difference between, say, the 1968 and now. You know, why I'm really hopeful, even in the face of, you know, I think the the, the hellfire that Trump is trying to muster up uh, in a number of different, different ways. So we, I want to talk about another way shortly, but that's a qualitative difference in, in the struggle that, that we've seen, you know, I'm, so to pit, you know, to paint a more well-rounded piece, because I think this piece is permeated and has been building up in a number of different ways, you know, particularly I would say over the last 10 years, as I noted, and, and again, highlighting those three points, you know, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, what happened after the Mike Brown got killed, and then, you know, what happened uh, with Standing Rock. I think those things, as well as the the kind of cultural stuff that's been, been, been taking place, you know, in music and, and the things that, um, how folks are organizing themselves, shoulder, particularly some of the younger black folks that I'm surrounded by, some of the work I've seen, you know, here in Jackson with like the, the black youth uh, uh, organizing project and some of the work that they've been doing, you know, the past couple of years and some of the techniques that they've been using to raise and elevate uh, consciousness has been real sharp and acute and has been showing up, you know, I think in a number of different ways. And you're seeing the byproduct of that now live on the streets and all these live streams that you that you were talking about, right? Um, but the other piece that I, that when I was talking about Trump, you know, I think we would be remiss in, in not bringing forth this other piece, uh, because there's, there's a, a stark contrast that we need to know, you know, uh, he's been trying to stoke the development of a brown shirt force, uh, for a couple of years now. Um, we need to note that uh, his campaign, in part, uh, was uh, predicated on picking up and giving political voice uh, to the Tea Party uh, astroturf movement. You know that that emerged, you know, with the generous funding of the Koch brothers and, and others of their ilk. Um, Trump really emerged to give voice to that. And he played that. He understood that, you know, I think much more clear than anybody that was, was his rival on this old stage. And I remember, you know, the, the two of us, I think talking some years ago. Uh, and I think we, I think we had a side conversation that where I was mentioning that I think Trump was going to win. And this is one of the reasons why I thought he was going to win. Like, you know, like he knew the, he knew the tune and the music in the way that I think the others were, you know, still trying to uh, uh, appeal uh, to uh, liberals and still try to play some concessionary games with liberals. When I think he kind of read it from from the right perspective that that day has passed uh, and that he'd done some some calculus to kind of figure out that there was a path to victory through the Electoral College. Um you know that that I think the most keen forces on the right executed, and, and they we, we clearly see the results. Um, but I think he's moved that to a higher level in the in the last two months, 
you know, with these tweets about liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, uh, calling forces out, uh, you know, to, to reopen uh, uh, the states um, with armed intimidation at every step of the road. You know, we saw that here in Mississippi, you know, the most glaring piece of what happened at the state uh, legislative, the state house in, in Michigan, you know, the clear acts of intimidation. Uh, and we were calling it out then. Many people were calling out then that if that had been a group of black men and women who'd shown up at the in Michigan or Virginia or Tennessee, uh, Kentucky and some of these other places talking about, you know, they were going to noose the governor or or lynch the governor, do all those other things. I mean, that would have meant, been met with the most fierce repression. Uh, but not, you know, this was being encouraged by him. And I think we need to 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 note that as something that we got to be mindful of, that there's a movement from below that he's trying to stoke. And this piece that he did today is the movement of, of above and trying to get those two to meet that we need to be mindful. Yeah. And, and, and I was, I was just going to note, we know what happens when armed black people show up at a state house, the state immediately passes gun legislation to strip them of their right to carry those guns. That's what happened with the black Panthers in California. That's an example that we know very well. Um, And it's a great point. And I want to talk a little bit after the break about language, about some of the language that's being employed and what that tells us about the future. And it's also critical. I think Hallie, that we talk a little bit about what has brought us to this point in particular, Mr. Obama, his letter that he published today and a whole lot more, lots more to discuss with Kali Akuno. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Enjoy the music. We'll be right back. Oh, 
We're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Kali Akuno. The website, cooperationjackson.org, at cooperationjxn on Twitter, peoplestrike.org, peoplestrike on Facebook and Twitter. All right, Kali, uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about, um, well, you know, sort of the intimidation of these right-wing uh, armed so-called protesters and and all of the rest of that. And, and I guess that really does segue us into the second issue about repression and about language. Because if you listen to Trump's speech today, the, the, the thing that's going to get the most attention is the not quite overt and yet pretty obvious quasi declaration of martial law that is what we're that's what everybody's mm-hmm. talking about of course but there's something else that happened in that speech that i noted that i'd like to get your comment on and that is when he said after he basically more or less suspended the first amendment he then said your second amendment so callie who's he talking to and what exactly is he dog whistling? You were going just where I was going, Eric. Um, he stopped short, I would argue, of declaring full-on martial law to give space to the development of the brown shirt force that I was mentioning. And yep. that was a clear dog whistle. Uh, to all of these right-wing militias that have been organizing now for decades, uh, that have been fully gearing up and been fully on deployed, uh, for them to stand up, as he would put it, uh, and restore law and order. Because he, and this is why we have to take, you know, it's, it's that piece and some of the other piece that why we have to take uh, something that I've been warning about for years now, you know, that uh, people need to divest themselves of this notion that the Constitution and bourgeois law is going to save us in the face of a, a, a rising fascist force. We have to remember there is no fascist force anywhere on planet Earth that I am aware of that was ever voted out of office. And if we really believe that this is what this man and his his the forces aligned with him represents, we better take a, a much more serious tone, tact, and organizing plan to deal with it. Uh, because there's still this kind of notion that, you know, hey, we're we're going to defeat him at the ballot box. Uh, he's alienated so many people. Uh, that it's impossible for to, for him to think that he's going to hold ground, etc. They're not unaware of that, and, and and part of the thing is why, if I have power, why am I going to surrender it you know, through a popularity contest? That's how they think, and so that that was a call for for the other side to get into the streets uh, and to restore law and order. You know, uh, I thought it was me personally. I listened to the speech. Uh, and I'm glad you pointed out, I thought that was the most crafty piece in it, the most strategic piece in it. You know, uh, 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 that that really kind of gave me warning, you know, and I'm one that has been arguing with folks, like Trump is not an idiot. He's actually a very strategic person. Uh, and, you know, he, he knows the arch of, of theatricality and deception. 
you know, and 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 uh, uh, start fires in one place so you're not focusing on what he's really trying to accomplish in another place. A master of distraction. Uh, and I think part of that was just distraction, but the other part was, you know, how how he intends to move strategically. So I think to me that is why I'm, I'm going to go back just a little bit, Eric, and, and to go back to that executive order that he issued was about a week and a half ago, right? Where, where basically he ended all the environmental protections and all the labor rights protections, just basically eliminated the Environmental Protection Agency and OSHA through executive order. There were some pieces in, implicit in that, the same type of dog whistling, which was basically saying, I'm going to leave it up to the corporations to regulate themselves and to control the labor force as they deem fit. Now, we have to remember historically what the older forms of corporate control of labor forces, what it actually looked like. And it was through the privatization of their own security forces, their own goon squads, right? The Pinkertons and things of that nature that were a common feature. Guess what, y'all? We live in a, in a world now where the privatization of the of, of the military is is you know military forces these subcontractors aka mercenaries have been a mainstay of US imperial policy going back to even before really but really stepped up uh uh in being the kind of a central force since the start uh, of of the war against Afghanistan Right, like I don't think people quite understand, like the like when people say that the U.S. forces are pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan, there's still tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of quote unquote contractors, i.e., mercenaries, who are working under the Pentagon, basically with no international supervision and the suspension of all their rights. They basically got free reign to just be, you know, killing machines. Um, that's who some of these same forces who who are now coming back home and operating on the streets uh, in Michigan, here in Mississippi, in Alabama, that he's dog whistling to. Uh, and he's counting on being uh, a reserve of support, that this brown shirt force that I think he's been trying to galvanize and putting them at the whims of corporate, that, you know, the corporate forces uh, to, to force us all back to work because they don't have no intention he said it. Let me go back. He he said very clearly, if a second wave comes, I'm not going to shut the country down. Right? And so, and and if, if they're not going to shut the country down and they're not going to provide enough relief, you know, in the form of uh, a payments or something kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, I think this should be implemented some degree, some type of, you know, universal distributed income or basic income you know, for the next, for this, for this next period at the very least. Uh, so folks could kind of take care of their basic needs in the midst of a pandemic. You know, the, it's very clear that they don't plan doing it. So that means they're going to have to f- extract work from us on a mass scale through some other uh, means as, as if, as if a second wave does or when it comes, cause it's coming now when it comes and folks start trying to make rational decisions about staying home, you know, in defense of their life and protecting themselves. You know they're gonna they're gonna have to have some forces that that uh, uh, by hook or crook they're gonna make people go back to work, 
And they've been very clear, you know, uh, uh, in their rhetoric and in their planning and in their execution. If your job calls you uh, and you don't show up for work, you can't cite health reasons anymore, right? Which was one of the things around OSHA. Can't cite that because we done eliminated it. Uh, and we're going to, uh, if you refuse to show up to work, we're going to take you off uh, uh, the aid rolls. You know, so we got to look really where they've already been headed and what they're planning on doing and just setting the stage, uh, not only to put the hammer down, but to use it to reorganize society in a major way. That's the dog whistle that I think he was clearly pointing out and trying to execute today. We should have no illusions about that. Um, and I, But unfortunately, I think we do. You know, there, unfortunately, too many. I agree with you. And um, the only other thing I'd like to just add to what you were saying is that these uh, right-wing militias, they serve another purpose. So I, I agree, yes, they are in effect enforcers of capital, enforcers for capital in a, in a very twisted truly American way. But um, they're also, I think, serving another purpose, and that is to be able to essentially do what the police can't do with the nod and wink from the police themselves. So in other words, it becomes this sort of extrajudicial paramilitary force that can be employed where the police forces are not able to go. And when I say not able to go, I mean from a from a political perspective, there are divisions within these police departments. Some of these chiefs uh, want to take actions against some of the bad actors in their apartments, institutional problems within these departments and so forth. So I think Trump and the fascists that are around him understand that they can't 100% rely on local police departments to do everything it is that they need to do that they want to see the so-called domination of the streets as he as he called it so how are you going to dominate the streets if the cops still have to at least nominally follow some semblance of law and some kind of uh, procedure well you get the extrajudicial paramilitary forces to do it for you and the police just feed them the information and get them to do the dirty work I think that I think that is really the the the, the outcome. Absolutely, uh, and let's build on that. <laughs> you know, um, what we've seen, I think, if folks are when we really as we dig into this more the next couple of days and weeks, right? Uh, what we've seen um, is that particularly the last two days you know, almost three now, last three days, um, more of uh, the hammer has really been coming, uh, you know, from the federal forces, right? Um, the the fusion centers, uh, which got set up under the Patriot Act, you know, which, which bring in all the federal reserve, the federal different legislations and put them in one kind of concentrated, command force, command center in a lot of different areas in, in, in cities and regions throughout the country. We have one here in Jackson, in fact, uh, um, a fusion center. Uh, they have been increasingly calling the shots. So there's already been kind of a federalization of this piece. And, and why that's important, uh, you've seen a recoil of some of the local police forces, uh, uh, forces having to admit, you know, what happened in Minneapolis 
was just blatantly dead wrong. Can't be defended. You know, uh, what happened in, in it was in Tennessee with the sister getting killed in her in sleep in her bed. You know, um, you know, and the, the statement for what it was worth, I thought it was significant to have the police chief of Minneapolis basically saying, I I fired those cats because, you know, the, it was just indefensible. And then the, and the talk about, uh, you know, uh, call out the, the act of solidarity that, you know, them not uh, the three others, you know, who were complicit, uh, for him to really call that out. You know, there's some fracturing going on. For then for, for Atlanta uh, to fire the police officer, I think it was two police officers, you know, for the excessive force. Uh, and then what occurred in, uh, was it Louisville? You know, where the police chief just got fired for all the, the officers, you know, acting in solidarity and turning off their cameras, right? We don't have, we're not getting that whole story yet, but clearly uh, the, that footage was so bad around they executed that brother uh, uh, that they that that they had to move in that particular way, and I think that was one of the clear manifestations that happened with Trump threatening folks on the call, that governor's call that happened earlier today, like that was the precursor of this statement that that you know he had already had in his mind made up this morning. They had a plan that they was going to do this, uh, and part of that is to you know it's a divide and conquer ploy, you know, because one of the main things that uh, that they're trying to execute is to get. Uh, the liberals to split with the left, um, you know, and you saw the uh, uh, the liberals are so desperate at this point that that number one, they're they're uh, you know the the zombie that they don't put out there named Biden can't carry his water, can't provide you know any leadership or direction. Nobody's even clearly talking or invoking his name anymore, even though he he gave a statement that nobody even you know is repeated. That's how, how weak it was that they've had to resurrect Obama to come out and, and try to make some comments and try to do the same thing he did, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, 2015 and 16, uh, which was, you know, uh, uh, put the, the, the forces, the, the nonprofit and NGO forces that the Democratic apparatus can influence and or outright control. Uh, to try to put them in the head of, of of the social movements, take people off the streets, take them from from articulating radical, uh, revolutionary demands, and to channel like that energy into dead end pursuits, you know, and, and that's what his whole letter and his his statement uh, was about was trying to you know get ahead of this motion, capture it, narrow it, and try to channel it back into you know the the twenty twenty uh, uh, elections. Um. I don't think that that's also something. I don't think that's going to have the same uh, impact and effect uh, that many are hoping that it will, you know, in the Democratic Party. I don't think it's going to have that same, you know, chilling effect. It'll start some debate, no question about that, you know, particularly with with a bunch of uh, black petty bourgeois forces who also, many also scared in this moment uh, around losing their status in their place uh, 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 and being surpassed you know, by, by more radical, uh, 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 voices, you know, uh, who are trying to raise their own issues and demands in a way that can only be resolved by them getting out of the way or being forced out of the way. Uh, I don't think that's going to work either. You know, they're going to try it. They're going to keep trying to put all, all these tricks. I don't think that's, that's going to work. This crisis is much too acute. It's much too deep. It's much too broad. 
and they have no immediate solution to either how they're going to overcome the pandemic and deeper still, how they're going to deal with uh, the economic devastation that, that is left in its wake. Um, and, and so everybody, both of those, you know, uh, two sides of the same coin, they in deep crisis, um, uh, and don't have a clear iota of, of where to go and what to do. You know, I think, unfortunately, the right is more clear about the liberals than that. They're just going to try to apply the hammer and that fascism is the, is the ultimate solution to all their problems. Uh, but that's not going to work given the current international dynamic. And they may think that they're going to go back to to uh, dismantling the, the globalized world that they themselves, you know, built up. And, and trying to bring manufacturing and all those things kind of, you know, back to the United States, it ain't going to work like that. You know, the, the, the system is not going to work like that. There's not enough resources to try to extract and, and do that uh, without, you know, uh, bringing the extinction of humanity that much closer and quicker uh, by over, uh, uh, you know, extracting the, the natural resources, you know, from the earth. So that just to even think about doing something that, on an industrial scale would just be a greater acceleration of the destruction that, that uh, 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 is in wake with climate change, which is an even more uh, serious threat that we're going to have to confront uh, in, uh, in the near future. So, you know, look, we are in, we, we are in for uh, the ride of our lives, y'all. That, that's what I'm going to end this on, Eric. Um, we are in for the ride of our lives. And, you know, the, the spontaneous energy has been, you know, inspiring to watch. But, you know, it's a, it, the, the rebellion, if we're serious, is going to have to give way towards us organizing ourselves to be able to sustain it and then push for revolutionary change. So there's some deeper levels of organizing to be able to sustain this resistance that we're going to have to take up and take seriously. That is where we need to go. And I think to start really articulating and developing a clear build and fight program for the future, uh, where we are taking on the task, you know, of really learning how to, uh, you know, uh, uh, govern our own affairs, govern our own communities, building, you know, the dual power apparatuses that we're going to need uh, to sustain ourselves in, in, in for the, the first couple of ways of any serious motion towards fighting back. And then be able to link, you know, uh, uh, on a national and international level uh, to push towards, you know, a, a more revolutionary outcome. That is a real possibility. It's something that's on our horizon. Uh, but we need to be clear, it could break very easily the other way as well if we don't take our historic task seriously. Final question for you related to what you were just saying, Callie. This is now the moment I think that we have really hit our turning point. And what I mean by that is for the last 20 years or so, the United States has waged this nebulous and yet murderous thing called a war on terror all over the world, terrorizing much of the world with its military industrial complex and its weapons of war. Mm -hmm. And that war on terror is now coming home. And we are now entering a period, I think, where many of the weapons of war that we have used all over the world that are being used against immigrants trying to come to this country, they are now going to be turned on us. 
And so we are now entering a new stage of intensity in this conflict yep. and a new phase of this conflict. And I think it's about time that people wrap their minds around that and adjust to that new reality. Yep. Uh, we can learn a lot from studying history. I want everyone to familiarize themselves with with particular one of the works of, of uh, Amy Césaire. You know, uh, Discourse on uh, Colonialism. In there, in that work, you know, which was written in the, the 40s, and for folks who don't know who uh, Césaire was, Caribbean, Black Caribbean intellectual, a very inf influential um, in the Francophone Pan-African movement, you know, in the 20th century, particularly the mid-20th century, wrote this work, which basically gave, I still think is the most cogent analysis of classic fascism uh, in Europe, where he basically broke down, you know, what fascism was, was the cannibalism uh, that Europe had practiced on the peoples of what we now call the Americas, Africa, and Asia, you know, the wanton just violence uh, and, and how that was perfected in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries through the European conquest of the world, what Germany and Italy did was bring those perfected methods into Europe to try to build the empires that they were blocked from building at that stage in capitalist development. We would do well, I think, to really study that analysis because that is what is now happening in the United States. This is a feature, you know, what I've been arguing for, uh, and I will continue to state that, you know, this, what we are seeing, Trump is just a manifestation of a direction that capitalist system ultimately was going to have to go in anyway. Uh, and that, you know, if Hillary had won, it would have been a lot smoother, a lot better, you know, rhetoric, but fundamentally a lot of the same uh, programs, particularly those on an international level, you know, the stoking up of conflict with China, trying to renegotiate uh, terms on an international level with China and the EU and trying to block, you know, the rise of China and building new alliances with, uh, uh, you know, the pact that they were trying to build with uh, with Asia uh, and Australia uh, that Trump kind of came in and blocked, etc. You know, they they were going to do a lot of this and by necessity we're going to have to try to do this to keep uh, America as the top dog in the international imperialist system anyway. Uh, and so Trump was was there to reorganize. You know, this, this presidency, whoever was going to be there, was going to be there to try to reorganize the overall system. And it's just stylistic differences how this playing out. But a policy of trying to to uh, whip, you know, the working class into shape and oppress people into shape in the United States. Uh, that has been coming for a minute. Something that I know me and some other comrades, you know, uh, have been trying to warn about when we did, me and Arlene Eisen, you know, did the, the 
uh, Operation Ghetto Storm to every, you know, 28 hours report, you know, that we did a couple of years, 2012, um, 2013, you know, when we did those two reports, the two issues of that, of that one report, we were really trying to warn that this is a, a critical reorganization that the system ha- is having to go through. Uh, and that if, if, if this move uh, to try to bring back, you know, more industrial capacity and production back to the United States, it, it, they're not going to be able to to do that paying uh, the wage levels uh, that American workers have kind of grown accustomed to since World War II, right? Even though that's kind of declined since the 1970s, but it's still greater than most of what the rest of the world has, has been in even, even uh, existed through even during that period. Uh, so they were going to have to break all of that. And the only way you're going to break that is to force conditions like we're seeing down our throats and then enforce that with maximum, uh, uh, you know, repression. That's the only way that that program was going to work. They, they just see this as an opportunity to accelerate what was already on the agenda. That's what, uh, uh, how Trump is, is strategically trying to use the pandemic, you know, uh, by everything that they set up and, and how he's trying to use, you know, the, the crisis that has been created by the Floyd rebellion. They're trying to use this, you know, for their political gain. We need to be very clear, uh, about that. Um, you know, so we need to get ready. You know, that's one one of the things I've been preaching all day. We need to get ready uh, because best believe uh, they're going to be thousands of new political prisoners, um, you know, in this society as a result of, you know, what's been taking place with the Ford Rebellion. Because they're going to use all the video surveillance that they have uh, with the new technologies that, that are, are at their disposal um, from their own institutions, things they set up, all the security cameras and all these different things and the triangulation, the, the social media that we have, they're going to use all this hundreds of thousands of footage to go after and hunt people. And best believe there's historical precedence for that. If you go back and look at the 1992 rebellion, the Rodney King rebellion in L.A., people do well to remember that LAPD and the uh, L.A. County sheriffs spent over six months hunting down over 15,000 people. Uh, and I think of something like 7,000 people wind up doing, you know, some stretch of time as a result of that, because we were insufficiently organized on the back end to be able to defend our communities. And they picked off people one by one. We cannot allow that to happen again. We have to learn from history and get prepared to meet this repressive force head on. And the only way we're going to do that is getting organized. So we better take this time uh, take this initiative uh, and start building up the self-defense committees that we know is going to be needed. Building up, you know, strike funds for the for the first rate actions we're calling up. Building up the defense funds that we know are going to be needed now in the wake of what just happened. You know, building the sanctuary uh, 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 institutions and churches and mosques and synagogues and in our own homes, bringing back all these types of tools to be able to withstand what, what's coming as they start to sick the police uh, and, and uh, their private security and, and the brown shirts uh, on us, um, you know, we, we better be prepared. We better understand that this is 
you know, not just speculation is now real it's in the realm realm of, of possibility, uh, more so than it probably ever have been in, in quite some time or probably since the days of the slave catchers here in the United States. This is where we at. So let's look at reality for what it is, uh, not try to mask it or sugarcoat it, uh, confront it head on. And we only do that by extending solidarity with each other and then organizing on that basis. It's a time for courage. It's a time for solidarity. And it's definitely not a time to shrink away from conflict. Kali Akuno, I want to thank you again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Uh, co-founder, co-director, Cooperation Jackson, cooperationjackson.org, at cooperationjxn on Twitter. Also, peoplestrike.org, peoplestrike on Facebook and Twitter. Do follow that stuff and follow all of Kali's work and all the great stuff that's coming out of Jackson. Kali, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.